Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. This is Kevin Roberts, your host. We have a special treat in store in this edition of the Foundation Podcast, and that is our longtime friend at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Mr. Grover Norquist, President of Americans for Tax Reform. If you have followed Grover's work over the years, you know that he is a leading voice on all things free market, conservative, and common sense, but particularly taxation and limited government. So you are in for a treat today. Grover, thanks for joining us. Kevin, glad to be here. So I think that people who listen to this podcast are likely to be familiar with your work at Americans for Tax Reform. We'll jump into the work that ATR does. But a lot of our audience, while outside Texas, are not folks who live in Washington, D.C. That's a place that you know well. And so I think what we could start with, Grover, although we're going to cover a lot of ground, is for you to give us some insight into what's going on in D.C. right now. Here you are in the great state of Texas, much better than Washington. But we need to rely on you to give us some insight into things that are happening there that we need to be paying attention to, especially folks who might be grassroots leaders, leaders of grassroots organizations, folks who are trying to be in the know without being in the swamp. Uh, it's a very interesting question because it's, uh, it's chicken and egg. <laughs> because of the activism of people um, in small towns and large cities all around the country in 50 different states, Washington is a different place than it was three years ago. It's a different place than it was 20 years ago. It's certainly a different place than it was 30, 40 years ago. Uh, you saw that with the election of Reagan, which shocked official Washington. And, and then it was you know, really sort of official New York, ABC, CBS, NBC. There, were, there was sort of one group of maybe 20 people who told you what was on the nightly news. Uh, and they always agreed on what were the top three issues of the day. Yes. I was wondering, <laughs> would, would they get together or something at lunch? Because it wasn't like one would say, look, this is what happened in Kansas. That's the big news. No, it was something in Albania. They never had some significant difference of opinion about what was news and, and what was the important news. So you, you had a DC that was in shock that Reagan won. Jimmy Carter, uh, who'd been president for four years, lost. He was shocked. Uh, the Democrats believe that Ronald Reagan was the least likely guy to win. Now we know he represented 60% of the country so well he got reelected with 60% of the vote and everybody except Minnesota voted for him. So Reagan came to Washington, D.C., and his radical idea was cutting taxes, deregulating, spending less, um, and confronting the Soviet Union. All of them uh, outrageous in the view of the establishment. By the end of Reagan's uh, eight years, we'd had two significant rate reductions from a top rate of 70% down to 28. We cut the top marginal tax rate for individuals more than half. And the second time we did it was with Democrat support. Imagine that. That we'd made such a convincing case that this was the route to growth that uh, liberal Democrats voted alongside. Uh, on spending, it was more of a fight. Uh, we still hadn't gotten a lot of the Republican Party there. Uh, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, 
with Bush following continuing Reagan's policies, uh, the entire left was, was 50 years of left of center foreign policy was exposed as flawed and uh, the Reagan years were exactly the way to go. You wonder why did we didn't try this in the 1940s or 50s or 60s or 70s. Might have saved a lot of people's lives. Uh, but that was a big lurch to the right, as in the, the center of the country shifted towards a Reagan worldview. And Reagan changed the Republican Party. He made it a Reagan Republican Party when he came to office. He was one of very few Reagan Republicans in Washington, D.C. Maybe Laxalt, I'd argue they were friends. Maybe Helms uh, on some stuff. Uh, but he really was sui generis. Uh, and yet Goldwater with a smile, but more, actually more serious at some mm -hmm. level, because Goldwater was howling into the wind and right. knew it. <laughs> and Reagan had been a governor of the 10th of the country. He had much more of a sense of this is working, this is going to happen, not I'm... John the Baptist screaming right. and somebody somebody down the road will come and pick up the ball. Uh, so that was a huge step for it. So we knew we could elect conservative presidents and this would work. But we also knew you'd never really elect a Republican Congress. That was beyond hope. There were 60 years of Democrat control of almost unbroken Democrat control of Congress. The spend, spend, spend uh, was, was, was inevitable. Uh, and then Gingrich brought a Republican House and Senate together in, uh, in reaction to Clinton's tax increases, spending increases, effort to grab health care. Uh, and then the House shifted to a Reagan-Gingrich. Now, Gingrich's insight was, we can too win the House, which was important. If you don't think you can win, it's awfully tough to do so. Yeah, it's astounding how refreshing that was, right? The, the, other, the other leadership was... It's not that they didn't want to win. They just knew they couldn't win. They knew their job was to slow the drive towards ever-growing government. Couldn't stop it. Couldn't return it. Not in the House and Senate. You'd like the president to stop the country from being socialist or stop the Soviets from eating us, and you could elect Republican presidents, but the Congress was just going to continue to drift left on spending and taxes and regulations. But then we learned you could have a conservative president, you could have a Republican House and Senate. Over time, the House became Gingrichian in its sense of we are the natural governing majority. When we go into a room, you expect most of the people in the room to agree with you, not for you to be the embarrassing, maladroit person who has a few ideas that everyone will be embarrassed by, uh, which is how some Republicans viewed the whole thing. So we said to ourselves, we're the natural governing party in this country. And since 94 till now, since the Taxpayer Protection Pledge that I organized through Americans for Tax Reform, we had 90% of Republicans to say we're never raising taxes. Once the Republican Party said that, not just at the presidential level, but at the House and Senate level. Remember, um, our dear friend Dole ran and led the modern Republican Party in the Senate against the idea of supply-side tax cuts, mm -hmm. against Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, and ran for president on tax cuts in 96, but I'm not sure anyone believed him. Uh, I'm not sure he believed him. That was not what he'd done in all his years. Right. He was a Kansas Republican. Kansas Republicans spend in tax. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a high tax state, it's a high spending state. They were Republicans because they were with the North in the middle of the Civil War, and that's the only reason right. they're Republicans. There's no limited government <laughs> position that they were particularly attached to or aware of 
uh, as they uh, went through life. Uh, and then we had a series of successes. Uh, and then Trump comes in and adds two. And we lost the House and Senate with the recession, with the unpopularity of the Iraq occupation. Um, and there will be problems. Democrats, you know, had crises too. And then we came back from it with the Reagan tax cut, less spending, let's reform government approach. So uh, I think we've, we've, the modern Republican Party, the modern conservative movement is comfortable governing as opposed to screaming, the world's not going the way I want it to. Mm -hmm. uh, and which is not terribly useful, uh, but may, some people feel it makes them feel better. The, and then Trump gets elected. And that's when the press somehow had been oblivious to the 30-plus Republican governors, the 32 states with Republican governors and Republican legislative control um, uh, around the country uh, where radical reforms on labor union issues, on taxes, even on spending North Carolina, uh, nine of the 50 states with no income tax, who'd have thunk it? I mean, talk to the other 40 states, they think they have to have an income tax. They think it's impossible to get out of that. Yeah. Yes. Excuse me. Look over here. Uh, and the nine not, no income tax states are New Hampshire and Wyoming and Texas and Florida. They're not all the same. They're not, you know, um, even Texas is today not a, uh, a one crop state. It's right. not an oil state yeah. alone. Um, it attracts many other things because no income tax and some some reasonable, comparable, com compared to other states, they're less spendthrift. Right. Uh, compared to some others, not. But compared to most, they are. Even in Texas, we have some, some progress to make, right? This is true. This is true. And, and the Reaganization of the modern Republican Party started the presidency, moved to the House and Senate, governors, state legislatures are, the, are late to the game, many of them. And cities and mayors are, are really almost not there yet. They haven't had the, they haven't been forced to be accountable, in the, not as transparent. They hide their partisan affiliation, so you can't blame, you can't, somebody coming up, you can't say, I know what you're going to do, and you know that we know, so you're expected to behave in one way. And you have Republicans and Democrats wandering around behaving in ways that are just, would confuse voters as to what parties mean at the state, at the local level, the local level. Less at the state level, much less at the federal, presidential level. Trump comes in and says, we're not playing by the old rules. And he just frightens, scares, horrifies all of the beautiful people in DC and New York because they have this narrative they've lived with and they believe everybody else believes their narrative mm -hmm. or that they're deplorables. Right. So, and when somebody comes in and says, it's not clear that global warming caused by people is a significant factor that, that, that is going to undo the world, um, or that the solutions being offered by the left have anything to do with solving that problem. Uh, these are debatable points. Uh, the left gets unhinged mm -hmm. uh, when we suggest that perhaps some of the regulations in Washington, D.C. are too expensive and unnecessary. Uh, the left goes nuts. This is, this is not a debatable point. In, in their view. Uh, so it shows you how ignorant the establishment press, the establishment intelligentsia in DC, New York were. 
they missed the Reaganization of the Republican Party. Right. They missed the breadth and depth of the 19, of the um, 2010, 2014 landslides mm -hmm. um, across the country that took place in state legislature. Yeah, particularly at the legislative level. Yes, right? and with governors. <clears throat> Trump shows up and they go, oh my goodness, Trump's taking over the country. No, we added a presidential signature to a House and Senate willing to pass radical tax reform, and did. Yeah. Uh, willing to pass radical deregulation, and did. The Congressional Review yeah. Acts, where you undo uh, some of Obama's favorite regulatory regimes. Um, this was huge, huge stuff. And Trump did a number of amazing things, and continues to, moving forward a deregulatory regime, a lower tax regime. But he also does it either oblivious to or hostile to the establishment. And it just bothers them that they can't say to him the way you do with those invisible fences that keep, keep dogs inside a, mm -hmm. a yard. You know, you can't step outside this yard, you tell the dog, because the their shock collar doesn't work. Yeah. He laughs at their shock collar. And he walks right across the street and goes and has a beer or whatever he does across the street. You know, he doesn't care. You can't, you can't tell him he has to stay inside a certain patch. And that's the horror. Oh, and, and then the Supreme Court mm -hmm. um, two appointments. Talk about unhinged. Yes. Well, the left was counting on those two Supreme Court appointments to give them complete control over the country forever. They had believed that when Obama won, first of all, they believed when Clinton won, that the world had righted itself. We'd gotten over Reagan and that there'd be a Democratic House and Senate forever. So where they ran out to have the energy tax, the BTU tax, uh, take over health care, massive new taxes, spending, stimulus spending. And American people reacted poorly to that, and he lost. Um, they go, okay, okay, we'll fix this. And then Obama comes in, they go, now we got the secret sauce, now we know what we're doing. And Obama lost too. So there were two iterations of the smartest men in the world, the beautiful people, coming in to stop the movement in the United States towards a more Reagan Republican view. And both of those were defeated for a number of different reasons. So it's a little hard to argue that, you know, Clinton had his problems with interns and stuff like that. That wasn't what cost him. The interns stuff came after he right. lost the House. People forget and that. And the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. There's really the losses that both Clinton and Obama were dealt with in the midterm congressional elections came from the, the rejection of them by the American people. Yeah, of their policies, not yeah. their personalities. Yeah, exactly. And in, in fact, both per remain personally popular with, with the base yeah. during that time. So there are a whole bunch of policies we could talk about, but at the top of the list, I'm sure for you every day, is tax reform. It is, after all, what you do. And I'm sure our listeners would appreciate from you kind of a bird's eye view of how the tax reform bill, how the tax reform law has affected the American economy. Well, this is very interesting because in the past we've done individual tax rate reduction, which is very helpful uh, and has stimulated economic growth. This one focused more on taking the business tax, the corporate income right. tax down. Uh, the United States, up until less than a year ago, uh, had a 35% corporate income tax. The European average is low 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, China, who we compete with in world trade, was at 25, we were at 35. Communist China, communist China had a 25% tax. We had a 35% tax. Uh, Germany had a 25% tax. How in the world, um, France about 30, you know, how in the world do you end up with more destructive and damaging tax rates than France or China or Germany 
and then wonder why you can't compete better in the world. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Chinese didn't do this to us. European Union didn't do this to us. Our government did this to us. And the Republicans were committed to taking that 35 down to 25. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, Trump ran for president, in the middle of his campaign, he said 15, not 25, 15. And the Republican Congress, which was writing the bills as the campaign was going on, uh, moved to 20, because they could make that fit. Uh, president quite rightly says, and it popped up to 21 last minute, 21, quite rightly says, goal still 15. And what will keep that 21 from going up was, is the pressure to go to 15. And I believe eventually we'll get to 15, mm -hmm. but mostly important, it's not going up. It's not going up. Yeah. We now have lower rates than most of our significant competitors. Uh, income from all around the world, the investment income is flowing into the United States. The giant sucking sound is not to Mexico, it's into the United States. And then there are 50 states. So when somebody in Brazil with a million dollars is trying to decide where to invest, and before he might invest in Germany, because they're lower, you know, they got odd labor laws, they got lots of problems, but they have lower tax than we do. And on the margin, a lot of decisions that would have gone to Germany or China or Japan or France, some other country, go to the United States. But once you decide the United States, there are 50 states. Which ones? And that's where we get the secondary effect, yeah. where people that want to invest, expand uh, factories and, and businesses, where do you invest? And the states that have no income tax, no corporate income tax, lower taxes, uh, more reasonable labor laws, more reasonable tort reform, tort laws, uh, the, the money flows there, not to Illinois. Yeah. And so while people move out of Illinois, out of California, out of New York, money coming in to invest is largely going towards states that are behaving well. So it gives you a virtuous cycle as states will have to compete to provide the best government at the lowest cost. Uh, so that corporate tax rate, we also cut taxes for the smaller businesses, subchapter S pass-throughs, about 20% rate reduction. We used to do a tax cut for individuals, and then we'd do like some tax credit for individuals. From now on, whenever we touch the tax code, there'll be rate reduction for individuals, tax credits for lower lower-income individuals, the corporate rate will come down again, and the subchapter S pass-through small business rate will come down again. There are four pieces, yeah. not two. And so every time we touch the tax code, the corporate rate's gonna come down and the small business rate's gonna come down. And the small business rate has to keep coming down in order to make it more competitive with the corporate rate. Uh, so it changes everything in a very helpful pro-growth way. And by eliminating the tax deductibility of state and local taxes, it means if you want to have high taxes in Chicago, you can, but everyone pays for it. The rest of the country is not going to subsidize it by giving you a tax credit. The pressure that puts on New Jersey and New York City and New York State and Illinois is going to be difficult to raise taxes in those states, and other states will see real benefits when they cut taxes. And as a result, what we ought to see in the in the next several months and, and few years is that the ineffectiveness, to say the least, of policies in those poorly run states, which tend to be left of center, dominated by the left, will be even more glaring. And for those of us who do public policy every day, we're anticipating that not only will the environment for good, common sense, pro-growth, conservative policies in D.C. be better, but more importantly, 
the real birthplace of those ideas at the state level will become even more fertile ground. Yeah, the, the interesting, good, cheerful, productive um, ideas over the last 20 years have all come from the states. Welfare reform, Wisconsin, uh, right to try out of uh, Arizona and Wisconsin. Uh, Act 10, the deregulation of public sector unionization, also Wisconsin. Uh, government transparency, Texas, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Governor Rick Perry, spread to all 50 states. More to be done, but very dramatic changes and improvements over what had been around before uh, and required. Um, you saw criminal justice reform, the right on crime movement, uh, how many people do you need in prison, uh, and how long do people need to stay in prison? Uh, you know, muggers when they're 72 are less of a threat than when they were 20. And so all of those things, that, that was a Texas initiative that's moved state by state and is now being discussed at the White House and, and half of Congress is halfway and there. Tweeted about by the president himself, yes, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so that's when you know you've won. That, that's, that's, that's the new metric for policy success. The zeitgeist right? <laughs> is. Uh, so these reforms, the the regulations that forbid a city like Austin or New York from messing with Uber and Lyft, uh, the laws that they have in Arizona to protect uh, citizens who want to rent out their basement, uh, Airbnb, these innovations are working and these are state efforts uh, and they really are helping to move the country along and the federal government will pass stuff after they see it work at the state level. So let's take a, a step back from these macro level dynamics and take a look at the policy world from the sidewalk level. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I'm thinking about the issue of poverty, which conservatives and liberals have wrestled with, often wrestling against one another for half a century. And I think for those of us who would define ourselves as conservatives, that we see not only a financial problem, but more importantly, we see that the, these dependency programs, which I don't mean pejoratively, have really undermined the dignity of the human person. And I remain convinced, and I'm, I'm asking for your feedback on this, given what you see every day, that the solution to those problems will start not even at the state level, but at the community level. And those best ideas, as they are doing in Texas, will bubble up to the states. And then we will be able, from, from the states, be able to, in essence, demand action from the federal government. Put a little color on that. Push back on that if you would like. I, I know that a lot of our listeners are very concerned about that issue in particular mm -hmm. because they have a passion for the policy, but the reason they do is they have a passion for the human faces who are affected by the policy. Yeah, two thoughts. One is we need the federal government, state government, local government to get out of the way mm -hmm. of innovative ideas from churches, synagogues, right. mosques. Um, civic groups. Uh, that stuff can't happen if the government's telling you that you have to have a license to do this sort of mm -hmm. thing or that sort of thing, that you can't have neighbors taking care of neighbors' kids because you're not a licensed, I mean, you may take care of your own five kids, but <laughs> you're not a government's <laughs> licensed mom or something. Uh, and what that has really done is made it difficult for the poorest neighborhoods for people to work with each other. Um, they can't pay minimum wage for jobs that their teenage kids can't get, uh, aren't yet worth the minimum wage, would be after six weeks, six weeks, six months of working. Um, so a lot of what the government's done 
promising to be helpful or claiming to be helpful or wanting to be helpful uh, has been damaging. So we need mm -hmm. the government to stop messing up, stop undermining these various efforts. Uh, and then we need to be look, and we need to, bad money drives out good when you have inflated currency. Bad policy can drive out good money. The federal government with food stamps can make it very difficult for somebody with a food bank trying to get food to people who need it and are willing to do something in terms of work or to, to, to deserve it and earn it. Uh, somebody shows up and showers you with free money. Um, the idea that you have to come in and start doing some work and getting going to benefit from charity uh, is undermined by the government. No, no, everybody has a right to charity. Right. Um, and all of those things from the Salvation Army down have basically been undermined by bad government policies. So give us some sense of the prospects for reforming that system over the next couple of years. Um, step one is, and this is the Republican game plan in the House right. and Senate, uh, that is to take things like food stamps, uh, Medicaid, um, government funding of health insurance in effect, uh, for low-income people, um, aid to families with dependent children, TANF, uh, block granting that stuff to the states and say, those things that are handed to people because they're poor, we're going to give your state, how much you get last year? A billion dollars. Okay, here's your billion dollars for these nine programs. It will grow with inflation, but no faster. Um, and these things have been growing faster than inflation. When you do, and by the way, if you save money, you get to keep it. Uh, when Maine said if you're between 25 and 55 and a single male, you're expected to work if you want certain benefits, free money, free food, free insurance from the state. And about a third of the people got off uh, welfare because uh, they either already really had jobs that they were hiding or, oh, well, I've got to work, I'll go work. I, you, know, mm -hmm. you told me I didn't have to go to work. Now I will. Uh, so it's amazing how many lives... Uh, you, Working is not just something you do to earn money, it's something you do, you do to earn self-respect, something you right. do to have standing in the community, to have your kids look up and know what you do. Uh, and cashing a check from the government doesn't do any of those things. It's, it's not the money. The Democrats, the liberals, they think it's about money. It, it's about earned uh, respect. It's about earned success. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you earned it that makes it worth something. Uh, everybody realizes that if you win the lottery, there's nothing special or good about you. Everyone calls you on the phone, wants some of your money. You should contribute to me. You have this money that you didn't earn. When you get a paying, when you get an increase at work, nobody calls you up on the phone, asks for a loan, because you earned it. They don't. They wouldn't presume to come ask you right. for cash that you had earned. But it doesn't bother them to ask you for cash that you won in the lottery because you didn't earn it. Um, and people know that. You don't have a lot of happy people who won a million dollar lottery. You don't read about how successful and happy they are because they're not. Um, cash isn't the problem. Um, yeah. And a job is not just about income and giving somebody money. Not only doesn't replace a job, it displaces a job. It's what you get instead of a job. So the government has actually been doing, there's a lot of blood on its hands. It's destroyed a lot of lives. It's destroyed a lot of communities. It's broken up a lot of families. Uh, all in the name of trying to help people. But, you know, if you saw a four-year-old kid up on a top of a building and he's throwing kitten off the top and you say, what are you doing? Say, I'm trying to see if it can fly. And you explain patiently, cats can't fly. Don't throw cats off the top of the building. 
if, however, 15 years later, when he was in his 20s, you saw him up there tossing more cats off the top, and they were beginning to accumulate down on the sidewalk, you'd think, you know, he's indifferent to what's happening to these cats. Or maybe he doesn't like cats. Uh, and our, our friends on the left with the welfare state have a pile of dead cats on the sidewalk that haven't worked and haven't worked for years and trillions of dollars. And at some point, they don't seem to care. Or at least they act like they didn't care. Um, or what they care about is that they feel good about themselves, not that they have a positive impact on other people. Mm -hmm. uh, when we won progress with a welfare reform in the 90s, Clinton signed the third iteration of that bill because he thought he had to or he wouldn't win re-election. Right. Dick Morris, his campaign manager, told him this, or campaign advisor. Um, we, the Republicans are poised in Washington to get back to welfare reform. And then when you block grant it out to 50 states, we'll have 50 experiments. And somebody will do stuff really well. And Hawaii will do it wrong again, like they did the last time. Uh, and we'll learn from success, and people will move in that direction. When you have a government monopoly, every, we're going to do food stamps one way and everything is the same. Nobody learns anything. How would you know what's better? right? Um, but with 50 states doing it, some people do it differently and go, that seems to work, that seems not to work. And then people will gravitate towards what works. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic that if we can get most of the welfare state block granted to 50 states, that we will see a dramatic reduction in the number of people dependent on government. Uh, and uh, people leading better and better lives. Let's hope and pray that that happens. <clears throat> what about some other policy areas in particular, uh, whether it's tax reform 2.0, other policy areas you're, you're working with every day? What are the prospects for additional action over the next couple of years? You probably have a clearer picture of the crystal ball in D.C. than most people. Sure. Uh, if the Republicans maintain control of the House mm -hmm. and Senate in this November election, they will block grant all the major welfare programs out to the states uh, and begin to look at how we improve uh, other parts of the government. But that's a big chunk of government. Uh, and in addition to that, all of the individual tax cuts that did pass for 10 years, because with budget reconciliation you could only do 10 years at a time, we'll make those permanent over the next so maybe next year. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also uh, looking at dramatically expanding um, all the various savings vehicles and coming up with a universal savings account um, for all your savings, whatever reason, mm -hmm. uh, and a retirement savings account for all retirement savings, rather than have an education savings account, a health savings account, and all these different little accounts that get confusing. Um, I think that would be extremely helpful. We're also looking through regulation change to end the taxation of inflation inside capital gains. So when you sell your house and there's hundreds of thousands of dollars over decades in higher um, dollar value to your house, all because of inflation, yeah. that you don't pay capital gains on that. Um, and the good news is that I think we're, the president supports it, mm -hmm. uh, and I think we'll get it. Good. So as we begin to wrap up here, final question for you. Everyone has a story. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast and follow our own work here in Texas and increasingly in D.C. understand that the best policy work happens because of the, the passion of the policy leader being able to marshal some resources that involve the passion of other people, whether they be donors or the lawmakers themselves. 
Tell us how you, Grover Norquist, got involved in the work that you do every day. Um, I was interested in politics when I was younger. Uh, my public library decided to throw out slash sell for a nickel or a quarter all of the anti-communist books from the 1950s, so I bought them all. Uh, witnessed by Whitaker Chambers. <laughs> I led three lives, um, and I bought them all, and I said, this is interesting. So I, I decided that, that the extremes of government getting too big were pretty horrific. Uh, and then it became clear that you don't have to be a vicious dictatorship to mess with people's lives. You can just be an incompetent welfare state mm -hmm. uh, and do some damage as well. Uh, and so uh, I was first a foreign policy conservative and then uh, just looked at economics and realized that uh, when the government got out of the way, people tended to do better. Historically, when we founded this country, uh, 1774, the average American was paying 1% to 2% of their income in taxes, total, 1% mm -hmm. to 2%. Uh, and the country thrived and grew and defeated uh, Britain, which was paying 20% taxes in London. We were at 1 to 2, they were at 20, and we were the guys shooting at them, going, get out of here. Because uh, they were talking about 3 or 4, and we were yeah. going to have that. Uh, so I think historically, and the other one is as I grew up in the United States, if I had lived in Den Denmark, I'm not sure I'd have cared if Denmark got it right. Right. What was the point? You know, yeah. The Germans would eat you, the French would eat you, the Russians would eat you, something. The EU would eat you. Uh, we got it perfect right here. <laughs> Liechtenstein, and somebody steps on you, and you're gone. Uh, but it, and, and people wouldn't necessarily follow it as a model. But with the United States, we don't get it right, the world is going to suffer. We get it right, the world flourishes. And we get it right, the world watches. That's right. And follows what we're doing. So the Reagan tax cuts led to countries, every country in the world followed Reagan with rate reductions. Every country in the world will follow the Trump corporate tax rates down as well. Uh, some of the deregulation things other states have followed mm -hmm. as well. The privatization issues, Britain and other countries. Uh, the reforms of pensions from defined benefit pensions that go bankrupt like Detroit to defined contribution pensions like your 401k, your IRA, which don't go bankrupt. Um, all of these reforms are going state by state around the world. Uh, so I, I decided the United States was the right place to be. And if you were, you didn't have any business deciding to be a ballerina or something else because you could change the world uh, in public policy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, He's a great painter, that's nice. Somebody in Denmark can do that. Uh, so, and the other one is, it was easy. Mm -hmm. There's no license, there's no permit. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, there are no rules in a knife fight, there are no rules, and, and I'd like to get involved in politics. So where do I sign up? <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> uh, you can set up shop, and back when I was younger, you started faxing things to people, yeah. and all of a sudden, that became a thing. Uh, we were able to, drive public policy with several thousand ideas being sent out by faxes and now yeah. by email and Facebook and Twitter and uh, podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, you can change the world with a handful of people who work hard and, and uh, it helps if you peddle ideas that make sense and work. Uh, Democrats, liberals have a lot more work uh, to do than, than I do, because I can sleep at night and stuff I've done gets better uh, <laughs> over while I'm sleeping. <laughs> the Democrat world is falling apart because they're trying to patch something together uh, that doesn't work, I'm trying to you know reinvent something that's never worked in the past. Uh, so I think it's, so I just, and when I got out of college, I went to 
uh, run the, the National Taxpayers Union. Mm -hmm. uh, the number two job there was open. I knew somebody who's on the board of directors who invited me down. I said, yeah, that, I thought taxes were where the rubber hits the road, the, where the, the, the unpleasant hard edge of the state hits the citizen. And uh, did that for a few years, went to, back to business school, came down, worked with the Republican Party, worked with the Chamber of Commerce, and the Reagan White House set up Americans for Tax Reform to pass the Tax Reform Act of 86 and asked me to run it. And from there, we set up a taxpayer group that did that, but then also created the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, mm -hmm. the center-right coalition meeting, and a number of other spin-off um, like sitcoms. There's a, there's a property rights. Very successful sitcoms. Yeah. Property rights uh, effort. There's one now on the sort of Uber, Lyft, mm -hmm. Airbnb uh, issues, um, high-tech issues. So this is um, even uh, working on banking stuff. Yeah. So realizing you can put together coalitions, that they're pretty similar. Getting together a working, functioning coalition of interested parties to change the world. You don't need a lot of people. It's really that simple. Yeah. Grover Norquist, you're a great American. Thanks for your courage, your leadership, mm -hmm. your clarity, and thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, and uh, you guys have started a whole bunch of good brush fires in Texas. It's easy to do. doesn't need a whole lot of us here in our public policy work because there are 28 million Texans, most of whom think the right way. That helps. I'm from Massachusetts. That was a little bit of a project. Indeed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.